0: Well, good morning. So today, I thought uh, we would finish up with uh, the Yoga Sutra uh, attributed to Pantanjali. As I mentioned, uh, there's a foreword and an afterword, and there's some really interesting discussions. As I'm going through, trying to pick what to really look at, I actually found a couple of interesting little points that um, may have been missed on both sides of the fence here between the Buddhist and Vedic philosophy. So what am I talking about here? First, we're talking about... So, he mentions that a detailed comparison of classic yoga and Buddhism lies beyond the scope of his book. Um, but he, he goes on and says uh, that an investigation much more thoroughly elaborated upon in the vast Pali canon than in Patanjali's single surviving discourse. Uh, likewise, he says, Gautama's uh, skillfully extends the practice of mindfulness to the activities of daily life, an area not explicitly treated in the Yoga Sutra. Okay, so remember that. So we're bringing and highlighting the fact that mindfulness is actually designed to be taken into daily life. And I want you to remember that he mentions that Pantanjali didn't uh, directly um, uh, reference that. So we'll go on here. Uh, reference that mindfulness is required in daily life. We'll go on. And he goes, one of the central disagreements between the two traditions uh, has to do with the two different analyses of suffering. So the author of the book... Um, specializing in, in Hinduism, I guess, or the Vedic knowledge, the knowledge, says that um, each identifies for penetrating truth. Pandanjali doesn't link them uh, together in a single sutra grouping as the Buddha had. But he says the the first truth, dukkha, suffering, present in all experience, including selfhood. This is important. Second, says dukkha has a cause. Third, the suffering of dukkha can be brought to an end. And finally, each teacher identifies a path to the end of suffering. So the first disparity, he says, are the teachings of the four truths to be found, uh, can be found, that the differences can be found in the identification of their causes. He says, Buddha located the source of dukkha in what he calls thirst. Uh, the primary urges in forming all volition Volition is, you know, conscious thought. We talked about this in another podcast, right? When you make decisions based on information. And uh, those decisions are usually um, influenced by latent impressions from your previous experience. So he goes on and says, The primary urge is involving all volition. To acquire, to eliminate, or to become. These thirsts are themselves conditioned on feelings, the done. As they arise, and cannot therefore be thought of as absolute. We, we talked about that, how uh, feelings, feelings like eye consciousness and ear consciousness, nose consciousness, um, these are born and die away uh, when we attach to them. He goes on and says that Pantanjali finds suffering in wanting, aversion, and becoming, and sustaining a self. He he acknowledges that wanting and aversion are conditioned by sensory experiences, but seems to attribute the survival urge to feeling like a self, which creates a self-reinforcing notion that the self is an entity of central and lasting importance, thereby requiring protection. These four causes of sufferings, clashes, however, are themselves predicated upon a single primary cause. Not seeing, avidya, that awareness is distinct from the natural phenomena that appear to produce it. Okay? So we're saying that, yes, awareness, constant awareness is required to see the difference. And he said it earlier. I don't know if I'll quote it when I'm going through this. He said earlier that there is a difference between awareness and consciousness. And it is sometimes difficult to tell the difference. And at times he even infers that it is impossible to use the consciousness uh, to see awareness. So he goes on and says um, that awareness is distinct from natural phenomena that appear to produce it. These include the senses, whose non-seeing products feel blended with the awareness seeing them. This projects an illusory sense of I that superimposes itself on the phenomena of perceiving. The sense of I must be sustained because it is inaccurately experienced as a source of knowing and therefore mistakenly regarded as precious and irreplaceable. Yoga reveals the true self of knowing, true Source of knowing, the imperturbable purusha, rendering the self and its survival dramas irrelevant. I love that. So yoga reveals the true source of knowing, the imperturbable purusha, rendering the self and its survival drama irrelevant. Okay, I find that very, very interesting. Again, both those quotes. So let me go back to later in this, where he says something quite interesting. So he says, for Pantanjali, Purusha is simply the impersonal awareness principle and nothing more. This may still be at odds with the Buddhist teachings uh, that all phenomena are without self, which presumably includes the conditioned realm of experience and also the unconditioned nirvana. One might well ask though, what is it that knows the nature of unsatisfactoriness? impermanence, selflessness, and nirvana. He goes on and says, Both Pantanjali and Siddhartha uh, would agree that nothing resembling a self or even an it is involved. Okay? So, here's two major confusions that seems to lie in both. So first, he seems to think, and I read this, you listen to me read it, He seems to think there's a difference in the source of the suffering. The Buddhists say thirst, right? Pantanjali says aversion, becoming, sustaining a self. Those two are the exact same thing. Um, If you look at altering definitions of the Four Noble Truths on the Buddhist side, you'll see that it's not all desire or all thirst it's that ego-based desires and wants, thirst. The same can be said for what Pantanjali says. He says it's the wanting, the becoming, right? The uh, self-sustaining, the um, self-reinforcing notion that the self is an identity central and lasting of importance, Therefore, thereby requiring protection. So I'll go back and say if both Pantanjali and Gotama both agree that nothing resembling a self or even an it is involved, so he says, if one might ask, what is it that knows the nature of unsatisfactoriness, impermanence, selflessness, and nirvana? Well... I'll jump a little bit further ahead, where he should have actually have answered his own question, where he he talks about. Uh, let's see where we can jump. Uh, similar as the Buddhist and Yogic paths are, uh, one aspect of their metaphysical models is difficult to reconcile. Gautama, living at a time of Upanishadic uh, influence, carefully, uh, repeatedly rejected the Vedantic notion that there is any changeless soul entity the atman abiding in the midst of a phenomenal world and its flux this would seem to put him at odds with pantanjali at least as interpreted in the traditional vedantic style most prevalent today interestingly though pantanjali's purusha itself differs from the vedantic atman to some extent the latter is definitely affiliated with an individual jiva but it is seen through realization not to be different from the universal matrix, Brahman, which is both absolute and relative, manifesting uh, as the world through the play of the Lord, Isvara. For Pant and Dali, though, Isvara is Purusha, and Purusha, uh, Purushas do not interact with the world, much, much less set it in motion with their play. It is not even clear if Purusha is individual, submerged through, it is uh, in the identity of an individuated consciousness. So for Pantanjali, Purusha is simply the impersonal awareness principle and nothing more. Woo! That was a mouthful, I know. So, the big difference is in Buddhist uh, philosophy, if I can use that term, the Atman is our store of um, Tathagatagarbha, our Buddha nature. What is their Buddha nature? It is that piece of us that knows that we are just better if we are compassionate beings and we are better to uh, not attach to things and not uh, uh, encourage aversion as they were talking here. In the Vedic and the um, Upanishadic tradition as he's talking about, the Atman is actually a little piece of uh, Krishna that is given when a being is born. So when your energy reforms into a new uh, sentient being, you are imbued with this um, spark that they consider to be a little piece of Krishna. He is impermanent and and, uh, never-ending, sort of, so it doesn't dilute him. It's the idea like the Shunyatra doctrine. And I argue that it is a oneness doctrine because emptiness of individuation and that's what we're talking here. So when they ask, what is it that knows the nature of unsatisfactoriness, impermanence, selfishness and nirvana? When both Pantanjali and Gotama would agree that nothing resembling a self or even an it is involved. Well, exactly. So the self is not tangible. We can't place what it is that we call us, we can't even place what it is that we call a mind. It is this intangible um, placeholder for, in this case, as they both clearly seem to understand, uh, is the root of our thirst, and therefore suffering, dissatisfaction, however you want to see it. The solution, and this is what I find most interesting, the solution for both and tends to be missed uh, by this one here. So, as I said, although Gautama named thirst as the primary cause of suffering in the Second Noble Truth, he also taught, especially in the Maha Satipatthana Sutra, the great discourse on the establishing of mindfulness, that the purpose of clarifying the nature of phenomena was to recognize and extinguish the fires of wanting and aversion and confusion that inflame all experience." Okay? And if you bear with me, I'll just go on very quickly. And Patanjali was not an idealist along the lines of, of certain of his Buddhist contemporaries. Objects have a real existence, he argued, and don't vanish when we turn from them. It's just that apparently foundational properties of an object projected onto ordinary perception in ever-changing proportions of light, motion and mass, gunas as they called it, are actually non-essential. And all of these seemingly foundational, foundational properties arise purely in relation to a self that is itself an empty construct. Okay. Now I find this absolutely hilarious. Now let's just roll this backwards and read that exact same sentence as, once again, let me read this. One might well ask, though, what is that that knows the nature of unsatisfactoriness, impermanence, selflessness, and nirvana? I say it is that empty construct, that self itself that foundational property that arises purely in relation to the disparate parts that we tend to confuse for an actual thing, that is in fact no different than any other disparate parts that make up an I. Let the, the Vedic uh, scholars call it the Atman, let it call it uh, um, uh, Brahma's net, uh, let us call it Tathagatagarbha our Buddha nature, let us call it the Jungian collective unconscious, that piece of all of us, that just intrinsic, innately knows what is right and what is wrong. So once again I answer the question with the question. That's self. That same self that is the root of our thirst and the cause of our suffering. It is the reason for our delusion in believing our self-importance or our permanence or our satisfactoriness it is the same entity. A non-entity, true. But as I've said over and over again, the mind is both the tool to liberation and the barrier. Why? Because the mind creates that volition, that jades reality. And at the same time, it is the mind that allows you to reside in that mindfulness or that awareness the Purusha, that Satipatthana. One and the same. Awareness is much more vast than thought. While awareness easily accommodates all mental experience, the mind is too small a container for the contents of awareness. This seems to be because so many of its functions are dedicated to selecting and elaborating on the desirable and also filtering out or eliminating the undesirable. Even much of the mind's own content, such as the conditioned values that determined what is desirable or not, is internalized and hidden from conscious view to make room for efficient mental functioning. It is therefore impossible for the mind to swallow the whole stream of sensorial mental phenomena. Yet it is also difficult for it to grasp that it cannot. This would seem to be one of the factors that prevent the mind from accepting the noble fact that awareness requires no experiencer or recipient. Conclusion reflects the mind's irresistible compulsion to reify and classify its experiences in relation to the self. It is in the nature of mind to sort things apart, compartmentalize them, and identify the laws governing their behavior and separateness. So. The philosophical mind rightly sees dualism in Pantanjali's isolation of awareness from consciousness, purusha from chitta, and nature, prakti. However, I posit that it is exactly that. That the mind itself allows um, many of these um non-essential tasks these uh, volitions to fill it up these latent impressions so once again the mind itself is what is required because I would posit if the mind is incapable to receive and reside within this awareness then what is it that would know the unsatisfactoriness, the impermanence, the selfishness, selflessness, and the nirvana.